Mouse to Mouse, Episode 6, California Dreaming Waking up in Anaheim on the second morning of our trip had the feeling of another beginning. I know that we'd spent the whole day before at Disneyland and loved every minute of it, with the possible exception of a few of the ride vehicle refusals of my upper reverse son. But somehow, the second day, after an actual night's sleep with our bodies starting to tentatively accept the peculiarities of a whole new time zone, always feels like emerging from a phony war into a real holiday. Even at this early stage, having not even hit the open road yet, there was a sense of anticipation for whatever adventures America had in store for us, but that was for another day. Our plans for this one involved adventures of the Disney California variety. None of us had ever been to the second park at the Disneyland Resort. The last time Sarah and I came here, it was still a parking lot. But as you can imagine, I had read plenty and we were all very excited to see what DCA had to offer. My reading and avid listening to a wide range of Disney podcasts did, however, tell me one thing, that the history of the park fitted in well with this narrative of new beginnings. If guest reviews are to be believed, and the company's subsequent action in spending over a billion dollars to improve the park would suggest that they can, there's a very good chance that had I been writing this any time between opening day in 2001 and the announcement of that revamp in 2007, my family's anticipation of a visit to Disney California Adventure may have been repaid with a distinct sense of anticlimax. The headline for the opening day review in the Orange County Register proclaimed with a lyricism that the Sherman brothers would be proud of that the sequel is no equal, and rounded off its report by calling on Disney not to give us a grooving emperor when we want a Lion King. In truth, this review wasn't nearly as scathing as the headline might have us imagine, but rather recalled the old parental favourite. They weren't angry, just disappointed. The point was that DCA was a very nice little amusement park, but then Julian Lennon had a very nice little pop career, until you realise his dad founded the Beatles. If you happen to be the offspring of the first, and maybe the greatest, and then you set up shop right across the street playing the same game, comparisons are inevitable. And if you technically match their achievements, Disney were fond of pointing out at the time that DCA had the same number of attractions, 22, as Disneyland on its opening day, Time has a funny habit of moving on, and the bar has an inconvenient one of being raised. Hench, remarking that he preferred the place when it was a parking lot, can't be nearly as well understood by discussing the park that opened at the start of the new millennium as it can by looking at the one that didn't. Some ten years before DCA opened its doors to those distinctly muted reactions, Disney had already begun circulating plans and concept art for a very different future in Anaheim. By 1994, Tony Baxter was enthusing crowds at the National Fantasy Fan Club convention with tales of a new breed of immersive participation-based theme park called Westcott Centre that would take the seeds sown at Florida's Epcot and cultivate them into a fully grown park that would, at least in terms of ambition, dwarf its sibling. As if to underline this growth, where the Orlando Park had its hugely impressive 180-foot shining silver geosphere in Spaceship Earth, Westcott's icon would be the golden spherical space station Earth that extended this height by an additional 120 feet. In every direction, the plans for Westcott exuded the desire to be the most spectacular and complete park that Disney had ever built. This, after all, was a company awash with confidence. 
Well into Michael Eisner's Disney decade, the Florida resort was bursting with expansion and they were about to bask in the glory of the anticipated triumph of Euro Disneyland. What's that old proverb about pride coming before a fall? With the advantage of hindsight, of course, we are able to conclude that perhaps the resort in Paris didn't result in the coronation of Emperor Michael in quite the way that Mr Eisner had expected. Instead, his Achilles-like infallibility began to drain in a way that rocked him back on his heels. The less-than-enthusiastic response that he received from local and federal governments, from whom he was hoping for a contribution some way north of $200 million to finance the necessary parking structures, they offered a $17.5 million investment, combined with a total budget for the project that was steadily creeping above the $3 billion mark, ultimately convinced the company that perhaps in this case, dreaming and doing weren't quite the same thing after all. So it was that by 1995, the idea of Westcott had gone south. And in the grasping of assorted drinking implements that followed, the concept of a considerably cheaper park based on mythologising the iconic nature of California was born. As we now know, the first run at California Adventure fell some way short of the legend established just across the concourse. And this meant that the huge crowds that were supposed to make DCA the third and possibly even fourth day in a vacation at Disney's West Coast Destination Resort never really materialised. Eventually, the general buzz of underwhelmed guests and presumably the failure to compose a new and exciting cash register symphony to rival the one that had been playing continuously since 1955, a short stroll away, meant that Disney had to borrow an adage from the adult fantasy resort just across the desert and either go big or go home. The company decided to effectively back up a huge convoy of dollar-filled trucks and put the park right. This also is where we came in. As I'm sure you'll agree, what the good people at Disney were really waiting for before they could rest easy in their corporate offices was to find out whether a fairly nondescript middle-aged academic type from London and his family would give their work the thumbs up. Once we'd made it through the new Pan-Pacific Auditorium-inspired entrance, it used to be a recreation of the Golden Gate Bridge, we immediately resumed our hugely inefficient touring pattern from the previous day's visit to Disneyland and got in line to pose for a character photograph. This, however, was not your average character, as Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was yet another part of the DCA day that somehow seemed to fit neatly into the theme of new beginnings. The story of Walt losing Oswald, his first really big hit character, as a result of the double dealing of Charles Mintz, who I was disappointed to discover looked nothing like the moustache-twirling silent-era villain that I'd imagined, is the stuff of legend especially as it leads to the development of a certain Mortimer Mouse. The fact that Mintz then himself lost Oswald to Walter Lance, the creator of Woody Woodpecker, and that the rabbit ultimately ended up at Universal, only to return to Disney in 2006 in a swap deal for sportscaster Al Michaels, somehow makes him the perfect character to welcome guests to this most reborn of Disney parks. Both of my children were inordinately thrilled to see Oswald and positively insisted that we get in line to have a photograph. Perhaps it's just that they have, by a process of osmosis, become as generally excitable as me in the presence of anything related to the story of Walt Disney, but their enthusiasm for this particular character, whom to my knowledge neither of them have ever actually seen on screen, came as something of a surprise to me. Whatever the reason for it, they were clearly both thrilled to be standing next to Mickey Mouse's oldest surviving if cross-species ancestor, and my chest swelled with pride at their creditable interest in that lineage. 
Our plan, in common with those of a significant number of the thousands of other guests who had, by this point, streamed past us as we stood next to a six-foot rabbit, was to head directly for the most celebrated of the park's redevelopment areas, Carsland. However, we know what they say about the best laid plans of mice, even ones who aren't famous corporate symbols and men, and I think I've already established that my kids, especially Tyler, who just happens to be about as mad keen a fan of Mater and McQueen as it's possible to be, are anything but predictable. With the promised land clearly in sight, Tyler happened to glimpse the entrance to the Bugsland area of the park. No problem, thought I. This will be but a momentary distraction. After all, had I not recently removed the very movie that the land was based on from his iPad, because in the year or so it had been on there, he had shown absolutely no interest in watching it. In other words, welcome to a morning in Bugsland. Now, it's not that there's anything at all wrong with this area of the park. In fact, some of the little details like the lightning bug street lamps or the jolly lolly stick benches are exactly the kind of touches that appeal to a Disney geek like me. But it's the kind of land that, while cleverly themed, is essentially just a collection of pretty standard fairground rides. It's also the kind of land that somehow magically eats time, which is not a problem unless it happens to be those golden couple of hours at the start of the day, before the place really fills up, in which you can stroll onto the headliner attractions without having to wait in a line until you're about to draw your old age pension. As I've already indicated though, first Tyler and then Annabelle had suddenly had a road to Damascus moment in which they realised that despite never having paid it more than a casual passing glance before now, It's a Bug's Life was actually their favourite film of all time and thus the good ship Brooks was destined to weigh anchor at this particular port of call for the duration. One by one, we took in the attractions. I sat and spam with the kids on Francis's Ladybug Boogie. Sarah is not a fan of being twirled about. We all bumped around on tuck and rolls, drive and buggies and were swooped into the air on flicks flyers. And if I'm perfectly honest, we had a whale of a time doing it. The defining moment of this period at the size of an insect, though, was about to be, at least in Tyler's eyes, realised as we entered the meagre line, in fact, even this is an exaggeration, as we were the only people in it, for Heimlich's choo-choo train. Excitedly, Tyler dived into the front portion of the camp and corpulent caterpillar, and with scarcely a delay we were off and hurtling our way through an array of oversized food groups with my four-year-old augmenting Heimlich's Teutonic narration with loud and rather delighted chewing noises. Do you know that feeling you get in your stomach when you're thrown headlong around a particularly fast fairground attraction? Well, it was nothing whatsoever like that. At least not to anybody but Tyler. In his mind, this was, I think, like the ultimate roller coaster and upper combined And when the cast members waved us through for a second circuit, so empty was this particular slow-moving attraction, he giddily urged us all to hold on tight because it was very wobbly and then proceeded to be stunned and amazed by every piece of giant food, just as he had when he saw them not two minutes earlier. In fact, he was also similarly taken aback by them when we encountered them again on our third consecutive ride and would, I am almost certain, have continued to be awestruck all day long had the line of waiting guests not been notably swelled by a second family with a pair of boys who looked suspiciously similar in age to our own. Much to Tyler's disappointment, we were therefore forced to dismount the larvae of his life and promised that he could come back again and ride later in the day. By this time, the chances of us strolling down the Disney recreation of Route 66 that ran through the town of Radiator Springs and casually hopping aboard one of the race cars that provided the ride vehicles for the big e-ticket attraction were slim to none and Slim, as they say, had left town several hours earlier. 
So we grabbed a handful of the last remaining fast passes for Radiator Springs racers. By now the return time was considerably later in the day and set about exploring the rest of the new land's stores and minor drawers. In a strange way, I was slightly nervous about actually setting foot in this area for fear of being underwhelmed. Such was the sheer weight of hype and coverage that it had been given and I of course had devoured prior to our trip. Could it possibly live up to the hyperbole that press, podcasts and online forums had lavished on it? The answer, of course, was no. It didn't live up to the hype. It pumped it full of premium high-octane Dynaco and turbocharged the whole thing to an entirely new top speed. Put simply, Cars Land is the most lavishly detailed and immersive-themed environment that I had ever wandered about in. I have no idea if the story of one Disney animator's child asking if this was where they filmed the movie is true, but I can certainly get on board with the sentiment. Walking around Carsland is about as close as anybody could ever get to following Bert and Mary Poppins' lead and jumping through the chalk drawings into an animated world. The sights, the sounds, and I can obviously only guess at the tastes and smells, are just as Radiator Springs must have appeared to Lightning McQueen when he wound up there in 2006. And it really isn't too difficult to see why he fell in love with the place. While there are really only a couple of actual attractions, the headliner that I mentioned previously, and Mater's Jackyard Jamboree, another one that spins you around, but so entranced were we all by the place that even my non-spinning wife joined in on this one. Just being in Carsland is an e-ticket in itself. And we literally spent hours taking in the incredible detail of all the buildings and shops, enjoying the nostalgia of the classic rock and roll soundtrack, and sitting down to eat at Flo's V8 Cafe. Well, to be entirely accurate... The rest of my family got their lunch at Flo's, but I could not resist the lure of the chilli cone queso. Some very tasty nacho top chilli on a bread cone at the Cozy Cone Motel, as I'm a sucker for any meal in which you ultimately get to eat the plate. I'm after all old enough to remember that Disney has some form for this particular delicacy, having seen but sadly never actually tasted the 1980s prototype Handwich a lifetime ago in a childhood family holiday in Walt Disney World. When the clock eventually ticked by to our fast pass return time for Radiator Springs, it will probably come as no surprise that despite his love for the characters, Tyler had decided that this too was an upper, and was therefore not going to be getting his patronage. So once again, Child Swap came to the rescue, and in turn gave Annabelle her customary two-for-one deal. Anyone who's looked into these things will know that the racer's ride system is a modified version of that used in Test Track at Epcot. However, to say that the Carsland headliner is the same as Test Track would be roughly akin to suggesting that your drunk uncle belting out his teenage pop favourites after Christmas lunch is doing the same thing as Elvis. Both, if you are very lucky in the uncle department, might be able to carry a tune, but clearly one is considerably more sophisticated than the other. And so it was with Radiator Springs Racers, which ratchets up the thrills and spills and most notably storytelling of Test Track by multiple notches. After one ride... Two, if you happen to be a nervous younger brother, we were all impressed enough to declare it an unqualified triumph. And for my part, I would say that it's one of, if not the best theme park attraction that I've ever ridden. I remain a little sad that Tyler didn't get to see the fantastic show scenes, particularly the appearance by one of his greatest heroes, Red the Fire Engine. But looking back on it, I think that maybe the intensity of the whole experience would probably have been a bit too much for him. Besides, as I'd noted earlier, we'll clearly have to come back in a year or two by which time I'd hope that he will be a little less concerned about his uppers. When we did eventually emerge from Carsland, with at least part of me wondering whether our forthcoming travels along the real Route 66 could live up to Disney's version of it, 
there was still an awful lot of California adventure to see. While it had been our original plan to spend one day here and two at Disneyland, by this stage we pretty much agreed to split our last day equally between the two. This somewhat eased the pressure of trying to fit everything into the time that remained. This was particularly relevant when later in the day the kids discovered a further favourite character, Russell from Up and his wilderness explorer camp at the Redwood Creek Challenge Trail. Another place that swallows up time like poo on a honey binge. By the time we got out of there, the evening was drawing in and we decided to cross the concourse to take in the brand new Paint the Night Parade and then end our second day with the equally recently debuted Disneyland Forever fireworks. As I mentioned previously, I'd spent a good deal of time before we left England priming the children with stories and YouTube videos of what they could expect to see and do at Disneyland. Far and away the video that most excited them was the one of Paint the Night. Tyler in particular reached levels of hyper that had scarcely been seen since the Beatles played Shea Stadium when he saw an honest-to-goodness real-life full-size Mac from Cars rolling down the street in his Technicolor LED glory. It was safe to say by the number of hours he had spent talking about it, that actually being stood on the curbside of that street as he passed by would be one of the highlights of his trip, if not his entire life. Like all good tourists, we staked out the perfect spot at least an hour before the parade and settled in to wait for that magical moment and the look on his little face. Along came the periodic countdown announcement that Pate the Night was just 15, 10 and eventually 5 minutes away to whoops and hollers from both exceedingly excited children, and then with just under two minutes to go, Sarah and I looked down at his happy little face, and his happy little face was fast asleep. Try as we might to rouse him from his slumbers, and bear in mind here that we sat directly beneath a giant loudspeaker. It was useless. To all extents and purposes, Tyler had left the building, and was riding the Disneyland Express to the Kingdom of Nod. So it was that his experience of seeing Mac remains to this day confined to a video on YouTube and none of us had the heart when he asked the next day when we were going to see the lighting up parade to tell him that he'd snored his way through the whole thing. That's not to say that Paint the Night is in any way a snore fest as it joins its ancestors the Main Street Electrical Parade and Spectro Magic as one of those nighttime spectaculars that nobody does like Disney. Likewise with the amazing Disneyland Forever fireworks show that combines explosions with projection mapping, by turns powerful and enchanting music and even snow, snow in California, to deliver the kind of thrilling pageantry that leaves the viewer singularly unimpressed with ordinary firework displays for the rest of their lives. And once again, there at the heart of everything, almost 50 years after he passed on to the great theme park in the sky, was Walt Disney, in sound and vision and in the spirit of the explosive presentation that united every single guest as they marvelled at the fantasy that lit up the sky over his park. (laughs) 